Everybody, and welcome to our inaugural podcast episode. Today, we're going to be talking about anaphylaxis. During this particular episode, I do have a special guest with me today. I'm going to have Reagan go ahead and introduce yourself, your background, and what brought you into EMS. Absolutely. Yeah, my name is Reagan Washest. I am a second year medical student at the University of North Dakota, obviously planning on going into emergency medicine. But my background prior to med school was in a rural EMS, just as an EMT. That all started from working in a pediatric ICU. I kept seeing all of the patients coming in and the paramedics would walk away. And I'm like, where are you guys going? I want to know what's going on outside of the walls of this hospital. So got my EMT and worked in there for about two years prior to med school. That's awesome. I feel like a lot of emergency docs, their beginnings in many cases started in some form of EMS, whether that was being an EMT or getting their paramedics license and bridging the gap. And then they eventually go into emergency medicine just because of what they learned in that field. We're really excited to have you. An important side note for those of you that are part of the Ortonville Ambulance Services, Reagan is going to be my adjunct medical director going forward as she's very interested in EMS and she wanted to be involved in the process and the protocols and the training aspect because she wants to learn as much as she can. So actually, this first protocol we're going to be reviewing today, Reagan, you did a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, most of it was actually just reformatting what was previously in that protocol, but it was a wonderful challenge to see from my experience in treating anaphylaxis and how I would want the protocol to be written so that out in the field, it actually makes sense. I think one of the most interesting aspects about medicine is that for some of us, we love the knee-jerk reactions and the really scary stuff or the stuff we see on TV. Like That's the stuff we want to be a part of. That being said, things like anaphylaxis can be incredibly terrifying. And so the whole purpose of starting with anaphylaxis was to really help demystify a lot of the scary nuances and to really encourage the use of the medications that we have in this protocol. To start things off for this podcast, I'd like to present a little bit of a scenario for you, Reagan. Let's see how much you panic once I present the scenario to you. So in this little scenario, Reagan, we're going to pretend that you're back in your EMT days and you're with one of your paramedic friends and you get a page that goes off and you hear that page goes out to a local park in your community. Dispatch tells you that there's a young woman there who's at a potluck and was enjoying the various dishes and then came to a dessert. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to her, that dessert had some peanuts in it and she's without her EpiPen. What's going through your head when you were in your EMT brain? Like, what would you be thinking about? Already, my heart rate would be increasing. It's a scary situation to be in. And I just have this personal experience, like the first anaphylaxis I ever saw was actually my brother. So anytime we would hear a call go out that was something similar to this, you just kind of get that feeling like you did when you see a loved one going through it. So I can feel the fear that this woman is probably having. And then to be the one to go treat them, especially without their EpiPen, they're feeling really out of control and you just want to get there as fast and as safely as you can. 
Absolutely. We'll say you get to the scene with your colleague, they're getting all the stuff out of the truck, you're on scene assessing this patient, and you note that she's got some hives on her forearms, her rate of breathing just by eyeballing her is increased. And then the bystanders mentioned to you, oh, by the way, she's vomited a couple times too. Hearing that, like, what do you think about? My mind is definitely jumping towards an allergic reaction and seeing the increased rate of breathing without really checking the breathing. Like the fact that you can see it from a mile away, you kind of know where you want to be going in this case. Because once our breathing is going or our airway is going, it can get really scary for both the provider and the patient. So noticing that right away, I already am thinking of these next steps that I want to do. Absolutely. I completely agree. The next step, the monitor goes on. You got everything hooked up. You know that her heart rate's in the 130s. Blood pressure is 88 over 60 and currently saturating roughly like 94% on room air. So you got those vital signs set up. And then we always want to think about the next steps too, right? So that would then lead us to kind of more of our rapid assessment. I like to equate this to our ATLS training when I was a resident and as a physician, because they always talked about the ABCDE mnemonic. And I think this is even more relevant in the field, especially while you're getting stuff set up and trying to think about things rapidly. So airway in this case, you notice that she's still able to mentate okay. So her airway does seem intact and protected for now. You do get your stethoscope out. Note that there is some wheezing in both lung fields. Circulatory, you note that she's tachycardic, but regular. And then GCS is 15 with her disability assessment. Not obviously exposing the patient too much in the field, but you can already tell that the forearms have this urticaria. It's going up to her neck and she's actively scratching as she's talking to you. This leads into the protocol itself and talking about the rationale, about the steps and how we would work through things. So let's transition over to the next part of what I want to talk about in regard to anaphylaxis, and that's the pathophysiology itself. I think before we get too far into the weeds, the most important thing to understand first is that allergic reactions and anaphylaxis are technically two different entities. Reagan, when you hear the term allergic reaction, what does that mean to you? Right. In my head, when I'm hearing allergic reaction, I'm thinking very localized. Think of a fabric going onto the skin and causing a rash from there. Whereas when I'm thinking anaphylaxis, there's multiple systems that are going wrong and it can progress very quickly. And stereotypically, you think of that respiratory system going down, but there's multiple other ones that can occur with it. Absolutely. And that's what leads into anaphylaxis is that it can be very nuanced. And sometimes the things we see on TV, the classic example of the patient getting a medication or eating something with a peanut on it, their airway suddenly rapidly swells shut and the doctor's jumping onto the bed and making a giant gash in their neck to put a tube down their throat. That's not really all anaphylaxis is. In terms of definitions, there's actually several different ones out there, but we want to keep it simple in this case. So first and foremost, when we think about anaphylaxis, it's going to be an acute onset. And when we mean that, it could be minutes or it could be hours after the initial exposure. Generally speaking, we're going to see some form of skin involvement or mucosa, so like inside the mouth or in the throat or something like that. And in addition to that, we would expect some degree of respiratory distress as well as hypotension. That's a classic example. Another way we could approach anaphylaxis would be talking about if they involve more than one system, as you mentioned earlier. The ones that we generally think about are going to be the skin and mucosa. If the patient's having any respiratory distress, are they hypotensive and tachycardic? Are they showing signs of vascular compromise as well as GI symptoms? And I think GI symptoms is the one that's most often overlooked in the emergency department as well as in the field. So does the patient have any episodes of nausea and vomiting? Have they had any diarrhea? Those are things that are generally overlooked when we think about anaphylaxis. 
One other point I want to make too is in regards to blood pressure itself. So what are we going to define as hypotension in the field when we think about anaphylaxis? And generally speaking, if we think about an adult, so someone that's 18 or older, 16 or older, whatever, they're going to have a systolic blood pressure less than 90. That's going to be your red flag for an adult. Doing some reading earlier today, I did see some discussions about with children, if their blood pressure is 30% lower than their systolic, which is a little bit hard to gauge, but I would say when in doubt, if you see a kid with signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis and their blood pressure does appear low for them, then I would just proceed down this pathway. All right. So we've defined anaphylaxis at this point. And I think it's safe to say, based on this case that we just talked about, she meets the criteria of anaphylaxis. Wouldn't you agree, Reagan? I would agree with that. Yes. All right. So clearly she's having an allergic reaction, but what does that mean? And I think this is something that's so incredibly helpful when we talk about medications. And it's something that I still try to remind myself as a physician, we get all these medications crammed into our heads during med school, we talk about mechanisms of action, and then we just kind of forget the rest. And we just remember that certain meds go with certain diagnoses. And I think that can be a great disservice for patient care. We're going to take a little bit of time to talk a little bit about what kind of chain reaction is happening in the patient when they have an allergic response. With that being said, our our illustrious medical student will kind of give us a brief rundown on what the pathophys of an allergic reaction is. And keep in mind, Reagan, that this is more so in the context of our friends in EMT and paramedics. They do not need the full teaching of immunology. Absolutely. And I think it's better to simplify these concepts as well. So when I'm approaching anaphylaxis, I think of it as just this step-by-step process in the body for what's happening. So an antigen or something troubled comes in like a peanut and our body can react to it with antibodies such as IgE. These are going to attach to certain immune cells that in this case are mast cells. It's not super important that it's these specific mast cells. What's important is what they release. They are going to release histamine that is going to go throughout the body. And this word should kind of ring in our heads because we hear a lot about like antihistamines. So as we're hearing histamine going around the body, a lot of different effects are going to come from it. The main ones are going to be vasodilation or the blood vessels are going to expand, which can allow them to lose some of the fluid that's within the blood vessels out into the rest of the body. So this increase in this vascular permeability is where we're going to see our angioedema or our swelling. We'll see the wheezing in the lungs. You can even see rhinorrhea or discharge from the nose. And that abdominal pain that we miss so often, that's because of this release from the blood vessels. All of this histamine is in there and some of the cells are sloughing off into the GI system. So really, histamine is the major issue here. And how we get to it is from those antibodies going to those immune cells, causing that release that just spreads throughout the body, causing the massive amounts of problems that we can see in an anaphylaxis patient. And I would say that's absolutely spot on in regards to the quick and dirty for what we would expect with an allergic reaction or with anaphylaxis. I will throw one more medical jargon out there just to further the discussion. And one other thing that we think about with cells and an immune response of any kind is that there's this release of what we call cytokines into the bloodstream. And cytokines are just some additional inflammatory markers or signals that tell the body to start having a response to try to clear whatever's causing trouble in the body. So we'll talk more about where that comes into play later. All right, so we've covered the pathophys of an allergic reaction. Hopefully it's clearer than mud, but now hopefully we can walk through step-by-step step the medications that are out there. These are the things that we want you to know about so that you can provide patients with the best possible outcomes and so that by the time they get to the ER doors, maybe they're turning the corner already. We'll walk through the next couple of medications step-by-step, step. and in all honesty, there's really 
three or four that we should talk about when it comes to the EMS perspective. First and foremost is going to be epinephrine. That's our first line. I think the most important thing to emphasize here is that epinephrine is the only medication in the anaphylaxis pathway that has mortality benefit. Furthermore, if we have a patient that is having acute anaphylaxis with respiratory distress or GI distress, there is no contraindication for these patients. Epinephrine is going to be the only thing that reverses what's going on. And so there should never be any moment of pause or doubt to give the patient epinephrine. Typically, when we think about the route, we're going to go right into their anterolateral thigh. And the rationale there is that the studies have shown that when we inject into that space, that's going to be the fastest rate to peak concentrations in the patient's bloodstream. So the fastest results in reversing the process. All right, Reagan, putting your medical student hat on again here for a second. What is the mechanism of action for epinephrine? Yeah, so epinephrine is going to be an alpha and beta adrenergic agent, which what does that even mean? But really what that's saying, it's going to increase your systemic vascular resistance. So I mentioned previously that the histamine can cause that vasodilation. That vasodilation is actually going to decrease your systemic vascular resistance. So epinephrine is countering that. In addition to it, it's going to increase your heart rate and the contractility of your heart. So all of these things are going to allow your heart to work better by increasing this cardiac output. And it's going to cause bronchodilation, which is, again, opposing one of the effects of this histamine, which is that bronchoconstriction, where we hear that wheezing and that respiratory difficulty. Exactly. And this goes back to the point that this is going to be the only medication with mortality benefit, right? It makes sense. When it comes to a patient that's going to get killed by an allergic reaction, it's because either their heart or their vasculature is going to drop to a point where they can't perfuse anymore and they're going to have a cardiac arrest, or they're going to get to the point where they're so hypoxic, they're going to cardiac arrest. By giving this patient epinephrine, you're not only addressing the heart, but you're addressing the lungs as well. And I think that's kind of the main argument for why this should not really cause any reason for pause. But I would say it does cause a lot of anxiety in the pre-hospital world for a lot of uh, paramedics and EMTs, especially in the rural environment. So Reagan, if you were out in the field or you just read up on this brand new protocol, what would you do to really help provide yourself that reassurance that epinephrine is the safe way to go? Or how would you reassure one of your colleagues or one of the newbies that you're training? Well, it's really important to talk to those around you. So when I was a newbie EMT, I would ask my paramedic all of these questions. Luckily, he was very into the pathophys and the mechanism of action of all of these drugs. So I would just ask, like, why are we using epinephrine? What is this even going to do for our patient? And hearing that there's no contraindication to giving it in these scenarios. So there's not a really direct way that you're going to harm the patient by giving this epinephrine epinephrine, given that anaphylaxis is a life-threatening condition. Where I think it gets scary in the field is that you are injecting and you're injecting really quickly in a situation as soon as you realize that it's anaphylaxis. And sometimes you're not even on that scene for more than like three minutes. And that's just a very fast pace. You sometimes feel a little bit out of control, but by knowing the protocol and knowing why we're using this, it can kind of calm those nerves with giving this injection so quickly into meeting these patients. And I would also add the beauty of this is for some patients that have a known history of horrible allergies or anaphylaxis, they generally will have an EpiPen with them or in their car or in their purse. And it is completely kosher for you to take that pen and use it. There's nothing wrong with that as an option. I would also add these protocols are designed to keep in mind that we do have the dosing in mind. And a lot of the kits that come out today, they have preset dosing. So you don't have to worry about drawing it up in a vial.
Yeah, that's a really important point. It's all set in there for you, especially with the EpiPens. But even in Epi kits that we have on the rig, there's not a lot of thinking that goes on with it. You have it right there in your hand. All you need to do is aim for that thigh and inject. 100%. It's actually one of the easiest things that we can do for a patient. And it's probably one of the most rapid acting and one of the most satisfying things that we can do in the field for a patient that's in acute distress. All right, I think we've covered enough on epinephrine for now. So let's move on to the second line medication that's recommended. This next one is a little bit bizarre in many ways, because often in the pre-hospital setting, we don't tend to give steroids with the exception of maybe COPD exacerbations or asthma. But I would add that in some cases, introducing a steroid once you have IV access would be the next move. That being said, in the context of anaphylaxis or allergic reactions in the field, currently there's no identified benefit or mortality to providing steroids. Generally, when I think about an allergic reaction, I'm going to be reaching for my methylprednisolone or my solumedrol, and that'd be about 125 milligrams IV in an adult. It's going to take about four to six hours to work. Reagan, do you remember the mechanism of action for steroids in general? I mean, there's a lot of things that steroids do, but in the context of an immune response, what do steroids do? Yeah, steroids can be very complex, but again, bringing it back to a simple idea, steroids are going to act on cells to inhibit the cytokine production and release. And these are these cytokines that you brought up previously. Certain cytokines in the body are going to cause inflammatory reactions such as that swelling or release of histamine or the difficulty breathing because things are just clenching up in our bodies. These steroids are going to reduce all of that by stopping it at the source of these cytokines. Exactly. And that's all the more reason why, in my opinion, if you've got IV access, you got the patient stable, and you're probably in the process of transporting them, and it's going to take some time, giving that dose of steroids is going to help that processing to reduce the inflammation. And I'd rather have it start in the field versus a 20 minute or 30 minute transport to the local ER, and then waiting another 15 or 20 minutes to get it on board. So that's steroids. Third line that we talk about typically is going to be our H1, H2 receptor blockers. Again, like our friends, the corticosteroids, these don't have much of a mortality benefit when it comes to the anaphylaxis aspect of things. Pretty self-explanatory in this one, Reagan. What is the mechanism of action for H1, H2 blockers? These ones are my favorite because they're just called antihistamines. All they are doing is preventing the release of additional histamine. And that's the most important point I want to make there. It's the release of additional histamine. That means that there is still going to be some histamine raging through the patient's system, and that's why we things like epinephrine need to be first line still, because we want to address the ongoing problem, but by giving that patient Benadryl in the field, you're helping to reduce that additional release of histamine that will continue the anaphylaxis pathway. Those are the main medications that we can give IM or IV, but there's also some other things we should think about in this case, right? Like anytime we think about anaphylaxis, airway is super important. We think about the cascade of events that like we talked about, airways getting more swollen, the cells are starting to slough off fluid and other materials and patients having increased trouble breathing, there's wheezing. What are the things that we can do quickly to help the patient be more comfortable, Reagan? And this will depend on what kind of crew you have on the rig as well. When I would be BLS, we would simply do oxygen if the saturations required it. We wouldn't be intubating, but this would be something that we would keep in mind from the moment that we see the patient. Is this going to be an ALS intercept? where we need that next level of care for intubation. But supplemental oxygen can be used in this case, especially if there is deficits based on the SpO2. 
I think you've covered a lot of the important points of the auction in there already and Crike for a later date as we do have protocols about those separately and we can unpack that more in a later episode. We talked about doing nasal cannula and providing oxygen that way, but are there additional medications that we can use, Reagan, in this case? There are nebulizers that you can use which can help with the relaxation of the airway and cause that bronchodilation, again, helping to reverse that bronchoconstriction caused by that histamine. You can use albuterol, you can use a duoneb on there, and both of those are written in the protocol. Exactly. So we like our mechanisms of action here. Albuterol and duonebs are somewhat similar in many ways because albuterol is one medicine, whereas duonebs have albuterol and ipratropium together. So what is the mechanism of action for albuterol and what is that doing in the context of anaphylaxis or an allergic reaction? The albuterol is a beta-2 adrenergic receptor agonist. And the important point with this one is that it's short acting. So you're going to see effects from the albuterol fairly quickly. All of that is going to cause that relaxation of the airway. So just opening up those pipes, allowing more air to come in, calming the patient by being able to get more air, and as well as helping that oxygenation status. Perfect. That's exactly what we would do. And in some cases, we just keep giving them the albuterol till they get to the hospital, because that way we just give them that additional support that we can to hopefully avoid things like intubation and crike. What about with ipratropium? What's the important part about that? Or what makes a duoneb more special? The duoneb has that additional drug on board, which is a muscarinic antagonist. Again, a short acting one. So we're going to see those effects rather quickly. It helps in the same way by having bronchodilation occurring. It's just using a different pathway. So you're attacking the problem from two different mechanisms, which is why duoneb's are just really great. Those are my favorites and my go-tos most of the time. Although there's currently a duoneb shortage I hear. So I'm going to have to get creative if we run out of our materials here in the next couple of weeks. We've covered kind of the basics in terms of things that we can give IM, things we can give IV, oral interventions. But there's also one other scenario that we probably should talk about because not only do young kids or young adults have allergic reactions or anaphylaxis, we can see it in the elderly too. So what would happen if you arrived at a scene and grandma's had something that causes an anaphylactic episode right in front of you? What are some things that you might think about in her that you wouldn't think about in anyone else, Reagan? With older populations, it's more likely that they will be on a beta blocker, which can actually cause a decreased response to the meds that we give, especially that epinephrine, which we know is the first line and the best course of action for these patients. So now all of a sudden we have a big problem in front of us because the epinephrine that we're giving is not nearly as effective, which then means that our anaphylaxis might continue to rage on and lead to more problems, if not possible mortality. Do we have anything else in our arsenal that we could use potentially in the pre-hospital field to help keep the patient alive or potentially circumvent the beta blockers? We have these patients who are not responding to epinephrine, which we can give up to three times. We can consider giving glucagon, and that can help to overcome this beta blockade caused by the beta blockers and give a better response to the meds, especially that epinephrine. And this is one of those things that's not talked about a lot. Sometimes we talk about glucagon in the context of beta blocker toxicity as well, because sometimes our elderly patients forget the amount of beta blocker they've taken or they've taken two or three of their doses inadvertently. And then all of a sudden you've got a patient who's very bradycardic and hypotensive. So the next question becomes, how exactly does glucagon help us in the context of beta blockade? 
short answer is it's complicated. I'll try to simplify it a little bit more so we can just kind of understand the rationale and why this might matter. So when we think about the context of beta blockade, these medications are seeking out receptors and potentially blocking access for other molecules, for example, our epinephrine. So these beta blockers are sitting on the beta 1, beta 2 receptors, preventing epinephrine from binding, and you're not getting that downstream effect that's going to allow for increased blood pressure, increased vascular resistance. There is a similar mechanism that is nearby and helps bypass that first step. So the glucagon receptor lives near the beta receptors, and by binding the glucagon, it bypasses one of the pathways that the beta receptor needs to get to that step. So basically, by giving your patient a slug of glucagon, it goes down a similar cascade and then gives you some degree of vascular resistance as well as increased heart rate and contractility. So it's kind of a neat way to help bypass things if you're in a pinch and you're trying to figure out other possibilities to help your patient in the field. I think we've really covered the pathophysiology of anaphylaxis pretty well at this point. What I'd like to talk about briefly next is talking a little bit about the evidence-based medicine when it comes to anaphylaxis. And thankfully, in this case, there's not a lot to cover just because this protocol is pretty straightforward and very simple. One of the things that I like to review a lot is the releases from the National Association of EMS Physicians, and they released a position paper back in 2011, which was an update from their previous one in regards to anaphylaxis. As we know, epinephrine is the main player. And so one of the things that they did is they released a physician paper talking a little bit about epinephrine's use for out-of-hospital treatment anaphylaxis. A couple of points that I'm just going to read right off the paper just to keep in mind. Uh, first and foremost, it's going to be important for emergency medical services providers to identify patients with anaphylaxis and to recognize the need for prompt initiation of treatment with epinephrine. And I think we've really covered today a lot of those red flags and warning signs, so hopefully we can meet that first standard. The second point is that EMS providers should be allowed to carry and administer epinephrine in conjunction with strict medical oversight for the treatment of anaphylaxis in the out-of-hospital setting. Again, we're meeting that criteria right now by developing this protocol to give you all the steps you need to give you the least amount of stress, but also giving the patient the medicine that they need desperately. Thirdly, medical direction for the administration of epinephrine in anaphylaxis should be based on the written protocols and quality improvement activities rather than a requirement for EMS providers to consult direct medical oversight for a verbal order. So again, I don't expect my paramedics or my EMTs to call me to ask for permission. There, We already have the orders written out, so this is something that I would hope that you all feel comfortable with going forward so you can confidently give that medication when you believe it's indicated. We've talked about this next point already, the preferred route for administration of epinephrine being intramuscular. A couple other points I talk about is that EMS agencies and the EMS medical directors should have continuous quality assurance and educational programs in place to ensure that epinephrine is administered safely and to the appropriate patient population. And that's what this podcast is all about, you all. I really want this to help be an adjunct for you in your education and to help you really understand the nuances in regards to epinephrine and anaphylaxis. And obviously, if there are questions in the future, you're welcome to reach out to me at any point. And we can definitely have more discussions and probably there'll be some training sessions on this in the future as well when the time arises. The last point, which doesn't apply to us nearly as much, but I think it's equally important to us in the rural settings especially, is that we do need to keep an eye out for further research in regards to the impact of out-of-hospital treatment in regards to anaphylaxis. And this is just one of those things where there are a lot of bigger services out there that do a lot of QA, QI to better understand what works in the field versus what doesn't. And it is my hope in the future that as I grow as a medical director and as I continue to learn more about the QA, QI process that we can start applying this to our rural agencies. And maybe we'll even have a, a topic on that someday. But right now, QA and QI is a bit beyond my scope. And we're going to focus more on the protocols, like I said.
I think we've talked a lot about the theory and the things to help demystify anaphylaxis. Why don't we go ahead and talk about your protocol and the project that you did, Reagan, in regards to anaphylaxis and how it works? The protocol is going to be laid out like your standardized one, a bunch of words telling you what needs to be done in all of these different situations. Although I think some of us are visual learners or don't like to read as much as other people. So I also created a flow chart that can help us to assess what's going on in these situations and where we would want our next step to be. Starting off with that flow chart, we have a patient with suspected allergic reaction. The first thing that we want to assess, and this goes along with our ABCs, are are those respiratory symptoms present? Are we losing this airway or is there wheezing going on or do they feel like they can't breathe or they can barely talk to you? These are all very concerning things that are going to make us go towards that epinephrine. If those aren't present, we can probably move more towards an antihistamine, but we'd want to continue to reassess these patients as things can change quickly. Let's say, as in our case we presented earlier, we are having these respiratory symptoms. So we'll move on to that epinephrine. We want to see if a patient has an auto-injector. They might have been too afraid to use it. It's a very common situation that arises. People don't like to stab themselves with a needle. We can use their auto-injector. So the first thing we want to do is check if that auto-injector is expired or not. I think we'd be surprised how many times people have them on them, but they're not actually ready to go as in they're expired or there's a discoloration, which you'll see on the back of the EpiPens. If we have it, it's not expired and it's ready to go, we can use their auto-injector. If not, we have EpiKits on our rigs. So there we can administer epinephrine up to 0.3 milligrams of the 1 to 1,000 solution IM. Now you don't need to think of that. You have the EpiKit, it usually is a pre-filled syringe, and you can inject into that anterior lateral thigh or right onto the side of their thigh. From there, it's a really, it's a reassessment game. You wanna check to make sure that our symptoms aren't coming back. And if they are, if they're worsening, we can give epinephrine again up to three different doses and we dose those five to 10 minutes apart. So like I said, it's a constant reassessing of your patient. In addition, we're starting to think of adding that antihistamine or the diphenhydramine, as well as considering that albuterol and the duoneb that we talked about during that med section of this podcast. From there, it's about transport. We know our job as EMS in the field is we need to get them into the hospital. So as we stabilize them with that epinephrine, we can move on to doing the antihistamines as well as the nebulizer treatments in route, especially with rural EMS. It could take a long time to get to where we need to be. So we want to move those treatments to being on the go. And lastly, if you've got the solumedrol on your rigs, go ahead and give it. That's just going to help start the process of reversing the anaphylaxis sooner for them. So we've covered a lot of details today on what is really one of the more straightforward protocols that we've got. But let's go back to the case and just think through it one more time. So we talked about already that this patient's probably anaphylactic shock at this point, given her hypotension and tachycardia. Reagan, you've been promoted to paramedic. I want you to tell me the steps you're going to take next, and I will give you her responses based on what you do. So knowing that we have multiple systems involved, as well as spreading of those hives to her neck with the constant scratching, I'd want to start with that epinephrine. Okay, so you get your kit out, you do what's instructed of you, and you inject into that anterolateral thigh. You do note after a couple seconds that she does start to improve. Rate is still high because remember, epinephrine is going to do that. But blood pressure does seem to increase. O2 saturation goes up a little bit to like 96, 97, and the urticaria is not spreading nearly as quickly as it had before. 
And here's where I'll ask the patient how they're feeling. If they're feeling like they can better catch their breath, while they might still be feeling that racing heart and a sometimes a headache, I'd be focusing on those respiratory symptoms because those can be the most life-threatening. Yeah, and she does tell you that she does feel a little bit jittery and off, but in terms of the symptoms she was having when they called the ambulance, those seem to be subsiding somewhat. And the jittery is really common with the epinephrine. So this is where some patient reassurance would come in. I would let them know that that's expected with the medication that we gave. So you've got the epinephrine in, your colleagues are helping you load her up into the back of your truck, and then you've got an IV in place. What are you doing while your colleague drives you to the nearest hospital? Well, since I've been upgraded to paramedic for this scenario, I would want to start those steroids if we have them on board. Additionally, an antihistamine would be great in this scenario not only for the antihistamine effect, but it can help calm the anxiety of these situations with our patients. I would also add, when they've looked at the studies for allergic reactions in general, your Benadryl is your H1 blocker. Some studies have demonstrated that the administration of an H1 and H2 blocker seem to provide additional benefit. Typically, we don't carry H2 blockers in the field, but that's just one of those additional fun facts about the importance of seeing what else you have in your arsenal and armamentarium. So you've got the Benadryl push. She's looking more comfortable and relaxed. She's got a mask on, breathing in that uh, Duoneb that you gave her, and just overall looks much more comfortable. After about 10 to 15 minutes, she continues to report that she's feeling fine, or at least better than when you first got there, and you arrive to the ER without any additional complications. Well done, Reagan. You saved your patient. Glad to hear it. <laughs> I think that'll about do it for our first podcast in regards to the protocols. I want to take the time to thank Reagan for coming on with me to talk about the protocol and for her to take the additional time to help create this awesome flow sheet and the visual aid for those of you that prefer looking at pictures. I guess that means we should probably start planning for the upcoming second podcast, huh? We should. Do we have a topic in mind yet? Hmm, I think we'll have to think about it a little bit, but I'm sure we might get some feedback from our EMTs and paramedics about what they want to learn about next. So that'll do it for today's podcast, and we'll catch you next time. And may your mayhem be well-controlled, full of teachable opportunities, but also provide you with the opportunity to provide your patients with the best care possible.